You're listening to the USSC Briefing Room, a podcast from the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for a USSC briefing on the latest developments in US news and foreign policy. We'll cover what you need to know and what's beneath the surface of the news. Hello there, I'm Jared Monchain, Director of Research at the United States Study Center. And in this episode of The Brief Room, we'll be taking a look at the threats to democracy in the Indo-Pacific following the center's hosting of the Sunnylands Initiative in early April 2023. I'm joined today by the founder and CEO of the Development Intelligence Lab, Bridie Rice, as well as USC CEO, Mike Green. Previously, Mike was Senior Vice President for Asia and Japan Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, also known as CSIS, as well as the Director of Asian Studies at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Policy. And Bridey, in addition to being CEO of the Development Intelligence Lab, is also the co-founder of the Asia-Pacific Development Diplomacy and Defense Dialogue. And Bridey's career in development and foreign policy ranges from the Australian Council for International Development to the Attorney General's Department. Now, at the end of this episode, Mike and Bridie, I'm going to be asking each of you to share either your favorite fact or number or statistic that you think is relevant from the Science Initiative and that maybe we've missed and maybe we should be more conscious of. If you're good to go with that, then let's dive right in. I think we'll start first with Mike. This was not your first Science Initiative meeting. Can you just explain what is the Science Initiative and what does that have to do with threats to democracy in Asia? Thank you, Jared. And it's good to be on with Bridie, who brought real intellectual leadership, not only to Australian thinking on this theme, but to our conference in early April, April where we gathered um, over 20 thought leaders on democracy from across the Indo-Pacific in this uh, Sunnylands Initiative. The initiative is named after the Sunnylands Estate in California, where we first gathered in 2020 to... Um, advance a vision for the region of strengthening democratic governance norms and strengthening also cooperation among states that um, that think, you know, despite its flaws, democracy is the, the best path forward for uh, regional uh, stability, prosperity, uh, justice, and national self-strengthening. And um, we started this between, at the time, uh, CSIS, where I was, and the National Endowment for Democracy and other NGOs um, for a couple of reasons. First, um, we we felt that, as I just said, uh, advancing democratic governance in the region is really, really critical to so many priorities, not only for the US or Australia, but for the uh, countries of the region themselves as they deal with challenges and need a, an inclusive and accountable form of government to sustain their own development. So we thought it was important, but the reason for the marriage of the sort of geopolitical thinkers at CSIS and the democracy advocates in the NGO world at the NED was because for a long, long time um, in the American debate, and I think also in the Australian debate, uh, democracy uh, as a priority was seen as uh, inconsistent with real politic, with with balance of power. And... Um, and also um, uh, maybe difficult in parts of Asia where we needed to engage um, in this competition with China over uh, strategic influence. Um, the reality, of course, is yes, it's complicated. Yes, um, if you advance democratic norms in your foreign policy, it complicates um, your engagement with some countries in the region. But 
um, we're not going to play China's game. We're not going to play a game based on completely uh, corrupt and amoral approaches to how states are governed. Uh, we have had in the United States since Thomas Jefferson um, and Alfred Thayer Mahan and and, and 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 Ronald Reagan, we've had a tradition of recognizing that um, how states are governed matters to stability in the region. Poorly governed states are more vulnerable to non-traditional threats like climate uh, change, um, but also to geopolitical pressure. If you can corrupt and bribe your way into strategic influence, then uh, countries that are not well governed are going to be vulnerable. So there's a geopolitical logic to supporting democracy. And, you know, we we also thought and found quite clearly in the region that while there are differences, democratic norms, good governance, um, these are priorities for states. So it was an excellent discussion in California. The group met again in Japan and then this year in uh, Sydney to keep thinking about how um, not just U.S., Australia and traditional donors, but but other players, Japan, Korea, uh, India, Timor-Leste, um, uh, can all um, learn from each other and advance this agenda for our common prosperity. Great. And now you you mentioned the the prior iteration in 2022. Could you maybe spell out what you see as the most pressing threats to democracy in 2023 in the region, as well as how this has changed from the last meeting in Japan in 2022? Well, um, the uh, group includes the head of Freedom House in the United States, which um, puts out an annual report on the state of democracy around the world. And it's it's been pretty uh, depressing the past few years uh, how many countries are backsliding on democracy. But this year, um, Freedom House found that in the Indo-Pacific, there's actually some progress. And overall, um, the region is doing better than it did the year before, despite obvious backsliding in some countries, particularly, of course, Myanmar. Um, so it's a mixed picture in the Indo-Pacific. Um, the greatest challenge that we focused on, um, frankly, I would say was corruption. That um, the full suite of, of norms that we addressed from uh, human rights to women's empowerment to, um, to elections and election monitoring and civil society building, uh, all matter, but the, but, the, but the focus right now, I thought, in our meeting. Um, and one of the three major themes in our report was um, was dealing with corruption. Because as we saw in the Solomon Islands, and Bridie knows more about this than, than just about anybody, um, the geopolitical uh, ambitions of China um, mean that um, corruption is now like catnip for authoritarian uh, hegemonic aspirants like China. Uh, they're going to put in money. They're going to they're going to do what they can to flip countries to their side. Um, and so that just, of course, puts greater pressure on forces that are trying to fight corruption within those countries. So that was a big theme and probably, I would say, the biggest threat in this neighborhood. But Brighton would be well positioned on the South Pacific piece of it. Yeah, Bright, I'd love to hear from you as what you see as the most pressing threats uh, this year. Yeah, I mean, Mike put a, um, put a good landscape shot on, on this issue. And on the one hand, it felt like out of the Sunnylands initiative, we saw a level of recognition that traditional threats persist. You know, the sort of things that are always covered by by Freedom House. We're talking things like the freedom of the media, human rights violations. How much space is there for civil society organizations to hold governments to account in the region? These sorts of issues continue to persist both at home and abroad in the Indo-Pacific. Um, but on the other hand, we saw a recognition when we pulled together people who weren't just from civil society, but are former government policymakers 
people like Mike who are thinking in these geostrategic terms. We saw the emergence of, of other kinds of challenges that really tell us our sort of democracy support or our development assistance support needs to keep up with emerging threats. And, and so in addition to corruption, I'd probably add things like misinformation and a lot of financial crime that, are, that is not only undermining human rights, think perhaps scam centers in the Mekong or elsewhere, um, but also undermining broader state effectiveness. So for me, I think the Sunnylands initiative really confirmed that these traditional threats to democracy, to good governance, to human rights persist. But I think we're going to see a real change in the coming few years. And I'm not convinced that our policymakers are ready to keep up with that change. So it was exciting to see those minds come together and, and really come up with a, a few of those areas that we need to focus on. Corruption definitely being top of the pile. And to follow up on that, Brady, you, you know the region pretty well, uh, being Australian, and you're talking to, to two Yanks here. And I've been here for a few years, but I, I think you, you have an exceptional insight on this. What are the regional differences that you that are there or that you see in attitudes or approaches towards democracy and democracy partnership? And how, what are the challenges to overcome? And how do you find common ground with these diverse approaches? Am I allowed to be honest, Jared? Please. <laughs> All right. So I was thinking about this. Um, I was thinking about it when my curiosity was sparked to to walk into this um, very US hosted place. I was thinking about it when I was lucky enough to to spend three months at CSAS in DC last year. I was like, what is it that makes me recoil when an American says democracy? And the best kind of euphemism I could come up with is, you know, when you say to your five-year-old kid, you have to eat your vegetables and they sort of just roll their eyes and mutter under their breath, oh man, like here we go again. Um, that is the sort of reaction that some Australians have when Americans start talking about democracy. And, you know, for Americans, it's, it's your natural instinct to defend and promote democracy. You learn about it in school. Human rights are in your constitution. I mean, it is in your foreign policy DNA to be spreading democracy abroad. But for Australia, it's a little bit different. And I really don't know what to make of this. And, and it was great to unpack this not just with Mike at Sunnylands, but also with Korean leaders, with Indonesian leaders as well. And I, I really feel like a little bit um, oscillating in my judgment, because on the one hand, I lament that Australia can't talk about democracy openly. You know, if we don't know what it means for us at home, if we can't put a flag in the sand and say what we believe is and is not okay when it comes to human rights, corruption, civil society, then what the heck do we stand for as a nation? Um, but the other, on the other hand, just because we're not out and proud on the democracy bandwagon, perhaps like the US is comfortable being, it doesn't mean we take a range of our democratic principles seriously. So for me, I think finding the common ground, say, between two countries like the US and Australia on cooperation or what is really on my mind, which is the common ground between Australia and our partners in the Indo-Pacific, is more around things like governance, service delivery. And Australia is really, really active in this space. You know, we work a lot through our development assistance program in this space. So I think the common ground for Australians is in the practical cooperation, less so in the rhetoric and the messaging around democracy. And that's a real challenge for people from the US to get their heads around. Thank you. And and Mike, to you, having, having served in the highest levels of the US government, how do you see 
the regional differences and the different attitudes and approaches towards democracy and what are the challenges that need to be overcome and how were you able to find common ground? Well, um, Brady's comments on this are spot on. And I have to say, you know, I, like you, survey or work on pretty much everything we do together between the US and Australia. Uh, and this may be the area where our rhetoric is the most um, dissonant. <laughs> um, as Bridie says, on the ground, as a practical matter, the US and Australia probably cooperate more to strengthen governance and civil society than any of your countries in the Indo-Pacific. And I'm on the board of the Asia Foundation, which does um, a considerable amount of work on women's empowerment and other issues um, with funding from DFAT and with a very close alignment uh, with DFAT, USAID, and the State Department. So when we work on pragmatic things, no two countries um, are more aligned. But the way we talk about it is really dissonant at times. In fact, I would say uh, in recent years, the U.S. Uh, narrative on democracy sounds more in common with Japan and Korea than with Australia. The, the recent Japanese national security strategy, you know, focuses on democracy um, as a national uh, priority. Korea is hosting major um, conferences, um, including the next summer for democracies and uh, funding 100 million explicitly for democracy support. They're not calling it good governance. Um, so in some ways, we, we sort of talk the same as Japan and Korea now, big differences, but more so than Australia. But in a pragmatic way on the ground, the US and Australia are very closely aligned. And, you know, Bridie pretty much got a right about why the US is different. You know, when George Herbert Walker Bush uh, was running for president. He told the story of how he was shot down by the Japanese and was in a boat, not sure if he'd be captured and tortured. And so to keep his morale up, he read a small copy of the U.S. Constitution. I can't imagine a Royal Australian Air Force pilot getting himself through such a trying time by reading, you know, Australian constitutional or legal documents, just different in how and how we think about it culturally. And in the, in the way that um, democracy has featured in U.S. Uh, development and foreign policy, you know, a difference in governance. Uh, we don't have a unitary system, a parliamentary system. Congress writes the check, and Congress says, um, even if the State Department doesn't always agree, you will emphasize, um, you know, trafficking in women's empowerment and human rights. Um, and the last thing, of course, is size. I mean, the U.S. is big enough to get away with um, criticizing other countries' human rights including China and Russia. Um, you know, very few powers have that heft, that size to get away with it. So they're, they're all reasons, but um, but I think, um, frankly, uh, we work well on the ground and I suspect the US is gonna moderate a little bit rhetoric coming out of the administration. And frankly, I would predict in uh, the coming years, um, new entrants to DFAT are gonna talk about this differently. You look at who's training people going into the State Department, the Asia scholars. Um, in the U.S., you know, most of them now are very focused on human rights and democracy, including in China. You know, China scholars in the U.S. who once thought this was unrealistic as a theme now regularly teach it and express concern. And you find in the State Department uh, younger officers and diplomats in a way that wasn't true 10 or 20 years ago are focused on this. I think the DFAT officers coming in in, in the future um, are going to be taught a bit differently about this um, uh, by their own professors at ANU or UCID. So my point is that the scholarly community has adjusted differently in the U.S. and Australia, but I think that just overwhelming uh, challenges on human rights will lead to some convergence in how both our diplomats tend to think about it, where there, where there are differences today. 
I guess then the Australia's hosting of the Sailors Initiative seems pretty significant. Um, to, to me, at least, as as an American, and could you maybe speak on the significance of that, um, Bridey, and and your thoughts on that? Mike hit the nail on the head here, right? So the most striking thing that I found when I walked into the Sunnylands Initiative is that the last ten or fifteen years of my career. I have felt like I've had to wear two hats, right? In Australia, in Canberra, when I'm up on the hill and I'm talking to people about, let's say, geopolitics, geostrategic circumstances and the region's security, I'm talking hard power, I'm talking influence, I'm talking Australian foreign policy and engagement in the world. And then I step out onto the other side of our foreign policy community, perhaps to the development folk or the NGOs or the civil society, and it's only there that I'm safe to talk about human rights, um, civic space, media freedom, and all the rest of it. And what Mike is describing about this this coming together of thinking about the region in democratic terms, in open society kind of terms, and in geopolitical terms, I think that is the thing that my country is getting curious about. It is what made me curious enough to come to Sunnylands. And I think that our government is curious too, right? You can see the signs. We've had a parliamentary inquiry into democracy. We've got now a domestically based democracy task force running out of home affairs. And of course, imminently, we're about to see a new Australian development policy release. Now, I wouldn't make a bet that you're going to see the term democracy in there, but I absolutely would be making a bet that you're going to see a lot more about the importance of media freedom. We know our foreign minister is heavily committed to gender equality And I personally would like to see a hell of a lot more being done on behalf of Australia when it comes to corruption and broader financial crime as well. So it feels as though the timing of this initiative being in Australia is on the one hand, um, picking up on the curiosity that Australia has to revisit what our position is on democracy and broader governance in the region. But I think it's also significant because it's indicating that Sunnylands is not an initiative that is just about U.S. democracy. It is an an initiative that is about bringing together really, really disparate views on what democracy might mean and listening to those views in the region. And, of course, Australia increasingly is seeing itself as a country of the Indo-Pacific, and we do play that middle power role. We're a practical, perhaps quieter partner when it comes to governance and democracy. And so I think The significance of having it here in Australia means that it is speaking to an audience in the Pacific and it's speaking to Australia's role in, you know, dealing with some of the really, really critical threats that countries in our region want our support on. So I think it's a good step for Australia to have hosted. Thanks, Brady. Now, Mike, this year's initiative not only was in Australia for the first time, but it also featured a particular focus on the Pacific Islands for the first time. And we all know that the Pacific has been in front of mind for Americans and Australians uh, in, in recent years, in particular after the uh, security agreement that the Solomon Islands reached with China. Um, what was sort of the, the tone and tenor of the discussions regarding the Pacific Islands? And was there a lot of divergence in the room on the topic? Um, before I answer that, let me just quickly pick up on Bridie's last point um, about uh, the dialogue and the Sunnylands Initiative as a dialogue, because this featured prominent thinkers on democracy from Australia and across the region. It also featured the leaders of all the NGOs in the U.S. that work on this, not only the National Endowment for Democracy, but Freedom House, International Republican Institute, National Democratic Institute. And 
this was as much a, a learning uh, experience for them, maybe even more so than our than our counterparts in the region, because they were hearing how do you talk about democracy? How do you think about democracy if you're an American NGO, if you're the U.S. government, given these disparate views? And so I think it was a a mutual uh, learning opportunity, and and I think there is more convergence. We could we we monitor this in the group, and and as Brady said, there's a focus. The new DFAT budget um, considerably steps up funding for the Pacific and um, funding for anti-corruption, the role of Australian federal police in that, um, and uh, countering uh, narratives and disinformation. That's all closely related to what we're talking about in terms of democratic governance. So there is a convergence, I think. Um, now, the Pacific was a particular focus this time in a way it wasn't before. Um, and I thought there was probably more convergence on that among the participants than almost any other theme because our our um, colleagues uh, from, uh, from that region really gave us the template for how to think about supporting democracy, uh, pointing to things like that 2050 strategy for the Blue Pacific Continent, um, the Pikitawa Declaration uh, at the PIF, the Pacific Islands Forum. Um, and so, you know, for colleagues from Japan, from Korea um, in particular, um, this really um, showed the way um, how um, uh, all of us, uh, but particularly those in the region like Japan and Korea, can join Australia not in supporting democracy, but in excuse me, not in promoting democracy, but in supporting democracy within a framework that the Pacific Island leaders themselves have built for that purpose. They haven't always used it, but it's there for that purpose. And that's really important because the convergence of geopolitics um, with uh, democracy support um, of basically realism and idealism um, is an opportunity, but there's a bit of a of a, of a risk in that. Because if you frame democracy in geopolitical terms exclusively, it looks like you're only in it to beat the other side and not to help invest in resilience and, and, and stronger countries and, and justice. And so this Pacific Islands discussion was excellent because the Pacific Island participants themselves gave us the template to help them do the job. That's what you know this really should be about. And, and brought it to you on the Pacific Islands. This is, as, as Mike said, um, something that has taken a lot of attention. How do you see the U.S. and Australia partnering moving forward, in particular, both bilaterally, but also multilaterally on the Pacific Islands? And just would love your, your thoughts on on the Sunnylands approach, but also maybe some ideas for pathways forward on that. Hmm. I mean, at the moment, sitting in a think tank in Canberra, it feels like I have a high-level U.S. visitor every other week. But um, I think the the question around U.S.-Australia cooperation in the Pacific is a really live one. So it feels like my government has been trying to attract your government's attention on the Pacific for a good decade or so. We've been waving the flag. We've been saying, hey, the Pacific Islands really matters. It matters developmentally. It matters geopolitically. It matters to Australia. It should matter to you. And, of course, that moment when that Solomon Islands Pact landed and it sent an absolute shockwave, not just through Canberra, but through DC as well. It felt like we all woke up. And since then, um, with the US focus on the Pacific Islands, um, the naming of PNG as a Papua New Guinea as a really critical area of focus under your Fragility Act, um, there's been this onslaught of US engagement on the Pacific Islands. Now, you could not get more high-level commitment to cooperation between Australia and the U.S. We've got it in the defense realm. We've got it in the diplomatic realm. 
And on the development realm, we've got like the administrator of USAID, Samantha Power, meeting with our foreign minister, Penny Wong, our minister for development, Pat Conroy as well. But what we're not necessarily seeing is is the practical, tangible cooperation outcomes on the ground as yet. And that's down to a few reasons, right? It's hard to cooperate with boots on the ground in these countries where both countries are aware that the Pacific Islands does not want to be treated like a theatre of geostrategic competition. But I think that there's a lot of work potentially between our bureaucracies um, where we need to get our stories straight of where we're supporting, where we're aligning our assistance. And it strikes me that for a country like Australia that needs to maintain really good relationships with the Pacific Islands, that perhaps things where Australia doesn't necessarily want to be out and proud on, things like perhaps some sensitivities on corruption or media freedom or other things, are the perfect place for the US to come in um, and provide support. But I think in the room, for me, um, a couple of really key messages came out of Sunnylands from our Pacific participants. And I think the first one was a very clear message that not all Pacific Islands are the same. Now, this might seem so obvious to say, but when we're thinking about multilateral engagement, this is really, really critical, right? You can't have a perfect regional-wide program if you're dealing with countries that, for example, have very different positions on their engagement with China. They have different populations. They have different development challenges. So that was the first key message that I think we heard loud and clear. And that really resonates with the research that we've been doing as well. Um, but beyond that, I think our Pacific colleagues are saying to us, hey, if you're going to be in the Pacific, you better be there for the long haul, right? We've seen the US engage. We've seen the US disengage. That was a really key message that came out. And I think some of the great work that, for example, Japan through JICA have been doing has been building a lot of trust and really great development outcomes in the Pacific. And Australia and the US can learn from that. Um, but the final key message, again, bleedingly obvious, but sometimes overlooked when we're sitting in our fine capital cities, is to take the Pacific lead on development. There is a strong Pacific regional architecture. We've got strong leaders in the region. They care about the development of their nations. Um, and for donors like Australia and the US, we've really got to take that seriously, put it at the forefront of our engagement and get behind those development aspirations if we're going to be a legitimate partner in that region let alone a trusted partner to work on democracy. Yeah, speaking of development, um, Mike, from your view, both in government, also out of government, how does development assistance and infrastructure building in the region shift the dial on democracy in particular? And and how does that um, you know, broadly differ from China? And how can um, American and Australian allies and partners um, continue to and to support that difference in approach? I think the infrastructure financing, Belt and Road, Free Open Open Pacific uh, competition agenda, and what Brian and I are talking about, um, support for good uh, governance, democracy, accountable government, are very closely related. They're different sports, they're different um, rules, different funding streams and all the rest, but they are very closely related. There is not enough... Um, supply of financing for infrastructure development in the world um, to, to meet the demands. So I don't think, even if we're concerned about China's Belt and Road, we have the option to say, don't take 
infrastructure financing from China. I just, some will listen, but a lot will say, look, we need the bridges, we need the ports, you guys aren't providing. So, so we need to start with that recognition. And then we need to offer something that is uh, what the Japanese call high quality infrastructure. Um, and Japan's doing it. I mean, the financing uh, numbers China throws around are big, but the actual projects, um, when you add them up, Japan's doing more than China through um, the Japan uh, Bank for National Cooperation, JBIC. Um, you add in Australia, the US, smaller but but important players, European Union, ADB. Um, there's another alternative for a lot of countries. Um, it's slower, it's more bureaucratic, there are more conditions, so we gotta streamline it, but that's the other critical piece. But even if we offer a good alternative, um, if the, um, the Ministry of Planning in country X can be bribed by a Chinese state-owned enterprise, uh, we lose. So that's why the accountability and good governance in anti-corruption piece is critical to level the playing field. And I'm um, still of the view that if civil society and if governments uh, in uh, countries receiving Belt and Road funding are able to hold China to account to make demands, um, that's going to have an impact on how China does development assistance, how China does Belt and Road, um, and ultimately could contribute to more stable relations with China. You know, the stabilization of U.S.-China competition is really important for Australia. Part of that is making sure that third countries are armed with the information, the accountability to hold China to account and demand higher standards. So I think there's a kind of feedback loop into how China approaches infrastructure financing that could be beneficial down the road. Um, and so they're very closely related. Uh, different bureaucracies, different actors, but um, I think at a national level and between the US, Australia, and with Japan, we need to keep both in mind. And Mike, at the end of each Silence Initiative, there's a, a joint statement. And, and this time in Sydney, you got 26 participants from 12 Indo-Pacific nations to agree on this statement. What does the statement address and how does this translate into actionable change moving forward? Well, we, um, we go for a consensus document with 25 participants. Um, Bridie was there, you were there, but participants from places as diverse as Papua New Guinea, uh, Japan, Korea, India, Australia, and the U.S., and others, uh, Timor, last, uh, the Philippines, and so forth. Um, and so, you know, getting a consensus document is not always easy. Uh, we've managed to do it um, because we, we have full and honest discussions, and we're looking for areas where we're honest about different approaches, but really probing about what we can do together. That helped. I think it also helped that we um, were able to invite um experts from the Taronga Zoo who brought animals to see. And when I told everyone that people who weren't cooperative would get the brown snake um, and the redback spider to pet, that I think that helped too. Um, Definitely. The like. statement uh, is a consensus document, but it has some um, action plans, if you will. Um, and we focused in particular on the Pacific Islands this time. Some of the assessments you heard from, from me and Bridie just now are in the report. Um, we looked at ways in one working group to partner for democracy um, and um, uh, emphasize the importance, for example, of working with civil society groups. The U.S. and Australia provide funding directly to civil society groups. Uh, Japan uh, and Korea are considering the same. And that's a trend we, we wanted to encourage, although not every country will do that. We spent a particular focus in one group on democratic actors at risk, how to help those who are getting up for democracy who are 
under the threat of imprisonment or worse. Um, really, really uh, encouraging uh, initiatives in Japan to create a network of universities, particular think tanks that can host Democrats at risk. We have this in the U.S., a bit in Australia, but that was a key theme. What more can we do to help people um, you know, get a safe place to work if they're under threat in their own countries? Um, and then, as I said earlier, anti-corruption was a big theme. Um, and uh, in the new uh, Australian budget, you know, what DFAT has to work with on this is really impressive. It's a big peso um, to work on um, but also um, countering corruption um, in Southeast Asia and especially the Pacific Islands. So um, these are the kind of concrete things we put together. Um, the front end is largely saying, look, here's where we all agree on why democracy is important. And then the back end is here's things given our different histories and experiences we can do together. And Bridie, uh, this being your first time joining the uh, Silence Initiative, what do you think is maybe some some significant um, action items from the statement? And, and where, what sort of pathway do you see forward for it and like-minded initiatives? I think that the most significant thing for me was just seeing in a room with 26 people from all different countries, from all different walks of foreign policy life, that talking about civil society and freedoms um, is not a fringe issue. It's absolutely mainstream to all of the kind of foreign policy objectives that countries like Australia, like Korea, like Japan, Indonesia, and the US have in the region. So the massive takeout for me was that when you put a group of geostrategic thinkers and NGOs and development thinkers in a room, to get that consensus on just how critical it is to not just talk government to government, um, but to be engaging in civil society and really backing those human rights defenders, really backing the sorts of accountability mechanisms that hold corrupt leaders to account, that to me was an absolute game changer. And the sort of conversation that I've certainly been advocating for Australia to have over the last decade. So to be able to invite that in and to have it in that international fora, I think is a really good step forward. But the challenge for Australia from here will be, okay, what does that mean practically in our diplomatic engagement, in our development assistance program going forward? Great. Now, we've been talking about democracy broadly. Sometimes it can feel a bit abstract in, in the way you talk about it and, and progress on it. But to, to make it more tangible, what sort of indicators will you be watching as you sort of try to assess the state of play for democracy in Asia in, in the year ahead? What, what will show progress or lack thereof? And I'll go to uh, Mike first on this. Well, um, we'll need to look at the darkest, uh, the most difficult cases, Myanmar in particular, where quite honestly, the prospects of the year ahead are not great. Um, then we'll need to look at what um, some of our partners in the region who are relatively new to emphasizing democracy and their foreign policy are willing to put on the table. And so Korea has pledged $100 million over the next few years to support democracy. Uh, Japan's new national security strategy emphasizes it. Um, now the debate is in their official development assistance plan, can they, um, the Japanese government, uh, be more flexible in how it allocates some of that funding? Right now, they can't give funds to NGOs without government permission. So in a country like Cambodia, it's pretty tough to give to civil society groups that Hun Sen doesn't like. But the Japanese government is looking at ways, the parliament in Japan are looking at ways to have more flexibility. So um, 
at the low end, dark end, difficult end with Myanmar, pretty pretty depressing. At the higher end, um, what countries in the region uh, that you know thirty years ago might have argued against the U.S. or against Australia on this issue, but are now playing a role? What are they doing? And then the last one I mentioned somewhere in the middle is India. Um, India's democracy is complicated and messy. There's a lot of criticism of what Prime Minister Modi's doing. But India also uh, is a hub for um, teaching the region election uh, systems. India has massive elections and on the whole, pretty clean election for over a billion people um, not voting, but in the country. So India is a key player in this and, um, you know, has one foot in, uh, but also one foot in the non-alignment camp. So how India moves on this, I think, is going to be a big shaper of the larger narrative in the region. And uh, Bridie, to you. I think um, closer to home for me, I have my eye firmly planted on the release of Australia's new development policy, which we think will be out sometime in the coming weeks. And I think that we should be really looking for, for three things out of this new policy. The first is the setting of really clear objectives on development, right? We need to overcome the kind of clumsy whack-a-mole on China game that sometimes our aid program has been embroiled in and really set out a, a long game that is about supporting the development aspirations of our partners in the region, including on the sorts of things that we've been talking about today. Um, the second thing I'd be looking for is an explicit uptick in the focus of Australian development assistance on civil society. I think that that would really signal that Australia is taking democracy seriously, even if we don't want to use the term democracy and I think that there's unexplored potential for Australia on corruption and on anti-money laundering assistance in particular. And then the third thing I'd be looking for is a little bit more information out of our government on DFAT capability. Um, that it is absolutely no secret that over the last decade, we have lost a serious amount of capability when it comes to how our Department of Foreign Affairs operates offshore on things like democracy assistance or governance assistance. The headline um, piece and announcement out of Tuesday's budget, which just happened on the 9th of May, the headline announcement was an uplift and investment in DFAT capability on development assistance. I would want to see that spent on the kind of nuanced engagement we're talking about as well. So I think that if we saw those three things, clear objectives on development, an uptick in support for civil society, corruption, anti-money laundering, and a serious investment in the ability of our Department of Foreign Affairs to deliver it, then I think that would indicate to me that Australia is taking seriously the role of governance and democracy in the region. Great. Thanks, Brady. Now, I mentioned earlier, I'd be keen to get either by the numbers or in case you missed it, uh, perspective from you. So do you have one, um, Mike, that you, you want to share with us uh, today? Well, eight out of 10 um, is my number. Um, when I was at CSIS, every few years we surveyed um, um, elites um, in 10 Asian countries about the future of the region. And when we asked uh, them to rank the importance of a variety of issues, everything from disarmament to climate and so forth, um, eight out of 10 countries that we surveyed um, ranked uh, Good governance, free and fair elections, women's empowerment, um, and um, democracy as um, high priorities for the future of the region. Eight out of ten. The two that didn't were China and Singapore. Um, and the Americans and Australians in the mix, uh, in terms of emphasizing these normative issues, were actually 
below the Japanese, Koreans, and Indians. So that I think what that number and what that survey shows you and what the Sunnylands initiative, that, that actually, this, those surveys are what prompted us to do this initiative. What they surveys show you is um, emphasizing democracy and good governance is not, is, is not a Western value. It's, it's a value that's really important to elite thinkers in the Indo-Pacific who care about the future of their country. Now, the other number is um, uh, 70%. And on average, about 70% of Indians, Thais, um, um, uh, and um, uh, uh, South Asian elites, when we asked about non-interference in internal affairs as a priority, um, said that was a priority. <laughs> so the, the, the post-colonial states have a very different view about how to do democracy. And as Bridie would know well, very resistant to having it imposed or, or being lectured or us-splained or America-splained. Um, and uh, Japan, Korea, US, Australia, Canada, um, you know, tended to think that non-interference was a silly issue, you know, not part of our foreign policy priorities. But some of the biggest advocates of democracy in the region, uh, India at the top, but also uh, Thailand and so forth, Indonesia, um, that non-interference, that post-colonial experience, that matters. And so we, that's why the Sunderlands Initiative created an important platform for the Americans and Australians and Japanese and Koreans to, to hear about how to talk about this and think about it in the context of the region. Thanks, Mike. Now, Brody, to you, do you have a sort of number or or something that, that um, a, a fact that we should be aware of? Yeah, my number is $1.1 billion. And the reason that that number is on my mind at the moment is that on the 9th of May, it was Australia's budget night, and it was announced that the budget for Australia's development assistance in the coming year would be around about $4.7 billion Australian. Um, that still has us in the least generous um, category of, of OECD donors, but nevertheless, it's $4.7 billion. And $1.1 billion of that, or thereabouts, will be spent on governance support. So for me, that's important because that's almost a quarter of Australia's development assistance into the region is focused on what we would call governance, um, but that which includes uh, the sorts of support that we've been talking about here today as well on broader democracy. So 1.1 bill this year out of Australia's development assistance program will be going on governance. That's a good news story. Great. Thanks so much again for joining us. And we look forward to chatting with you again or hopefully hearing more about the Sunnylands Initiative in the future. Thanks, Penny. That was awesome. That, that was really fun. That was really fun. Before we go, I'd like to point out a couple of other podcasts that may be of interest to our listeners. We have our Technology and Security Podcast, TS, run by Dr. Mia Hammond Airy, who is USC's Director of Emerging Technology. We also have our other USC live series that runs recordings from our major live events, and recent episodes have included an interview of Qantas CEO Alan Joyce and former U.S. ambassador John Barry, and as well as our researcher responses to the Oculus report and a panel discussion with the cast of Hamilton, Australia. You can find these on our website, usc.edu.au, or wherever you get your podcasts.